Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, just before I got up on the beach uh, to, to give this message, I got stung by a bee right here in my face. So, so if I pass out up here from uh, some sort of anaphylactic, just, yeah, get your EpiPen out and jam it in my thighs. Fortunately, I'm, so far, I'm not allergic to bees, so it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, uh, I got married when I was 29, which is really cool. My in-laws are here, Keith and Joan. Hi, you guys. Yeah. And uh, back, back then, getting married at 29, I was kind of late, and people were wondering, dude, are you ever going to get married? And, you know, I was single, living the single life up in the Bay Area. I just loved it. And, you know, out every night and with friends and had some roommates and, and just enjoyed it. But then I realized, you know, I, I don't want to be single my whole life. I would like to get married. And then the thought hit me. You know, if you, if you want to get married, you might want to shift your life and start living the kind of life of someone who actually could get married. So I started staying home at nighttime when I had no reason to stay home. I guess that's what married people do. People that are not married say, that's boring. But I started staying home, and I looked out the window, and I started taking care of my yard. Like, I started doing, I started mowing the lawn and trimming the hedges, and I, I became quite domesticated. And it's a miracle, because I did that, and then I got married. I mean, that's the secret. But it's sort of like you have a vision for what you want to be true, and you begin to live into that vision. And that has an impact on our lives and our relationships. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that features a woman, a woman from Lebanon, a woman who has a name. We just don't know her name. And she is going to show us what it looks like to pull heaven down to earth, to pull the future into our present. And so I'm going to read both passages where her story is told, one from Mark and the other from Matthew, second, and we'll land in Matthew, and that's the passage that I'll make the most comments about. But we get some, some details. And as I read these two texts, I'd like to invite you to notice this woman's pleading persistence. And secondly, notice Jesus' puzzling resistance. So, Mark chapter 7 and verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him... A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then we'll go to Matthew 15, just because it adds more detail to the story. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I hope you're confused. (laughs) It's a puzzling passage. So let me talk about it and hopefully not confuse you more. So the woman's pleading persistence. This is a really interesting woman, the woman from Lebanon who has a name. We just don't know it. I wish her name was listed here. Let's call her Allie, won't we? Allie, this woman, she's a Canaanite woman. She's female. She's from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. That's modern-day Lebanon. She's a Greek. She's born in Syrian Phoenicia. In other words, what is being highlighted in this passage is that this woman is a foreigner. She is an outsider. In fact, there's continual hostility between her people and Israel, the Jews. They don't get along. They're angry with one another. In fact, Paul talks about these kinds of people in Ephesians 2 and says about them, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Foreign, pagans, Canaanites. But notice also she's a mother. She's a mother of a little daughter. Moms have a unique attachment and love for their children. Don't don't get between a mom and her hurting child. There's just something about that love relationship that goes deep. In other words, this woman was familiar with pain. The pain of her daughter was like pain in her own heart. She's familiar with suffering and grief. And I think in that moment of that suffering and that fear and that longing for help, there's this unique openness to Jesus. You know, sometimes we get into the most extraordinarily difficult life situations, and it's at that moment that God can break through and speak quite personally to us. I think she was open. I think she was searching. She was seeking. And her daughter's pain was her own pain. She said, Jesus, help me. Help me. But the third thing I notice about her is that she's a Jesus seeker. Or in other words, she's a, she's a Jesus-aware person. I don't know how she heard about Jesus. You know, I mean, so far away from the center of Jesus' activity, and this woman hears about him, and she pursues him. She gives him honor. And she also manifests this unique spiritual understanding because she calls him what? Lord, son of David. Now, the term son of David was a uniquely Israelite statement. David was the king, and they longed for the promise that there would always be a son of David on the king of on the throne of Israel forever. And the disciples were even struggling to to understand what what this meant, that Jesus somehow was in this, this category, this role, this title as the son of David, the one who would be the king of Israel, and not only Israel, but all the nations forever. They were confused. They, they continually misunderstood what Jesus was all about and what his mission was for. And somehow this woman, this foreigner, this outsider, this woman in deep pain, she, she gets it. She, she understands. And she comes to him, help me, help me. 
but she's met with Jesus' puzzling resistance. Her persistence is met with our Savior's resistance, and it's confusing. Jesus, the text tells us, had withdrawn. He got away. Jesus needed rest. He needed some respite. He needed some margin and space. He wanted to get away from the constantly attacking religious leaders in Israel. And at the same time, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what he was doing. He knew there there was a timeline that his face was set toward Jerusalem and Calvary and the cross. But he knew it was not time yet. He was not going to give himself over to their evil machinations quite yet. So he retreats. He leaves Israel. He leaves Galilee, Judea. And he goes up into Canaan, into Lebanon. He gets away. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, as a youth pastor, when I was in the Bay Area, I used to uh, take my day off, and I would often drive down to Santa Cruz and surf Steamers Lane and get away from high school students and their parents. You know how it is. Sometimes you just want, want a break. Like if you go to the Riviera Village, right? and uh, you, you eat at one of the outdoor restaurants. It's a social fest, and it's really fun. In fact, you, you even feel good when, you know, you just see all your friends, and you wave and all that. Well, I, I just want to be honest with you that, that Cynthia and I sometimes would say, no, we're not going to the village. Let, let's go find an out-of-the-way restaurant, say downtown L.A. or Long Beach, because then we won't see anyone from our church. Now, don't look at me with those judgmental eyes. I know you've done the same. Sometimes you just want some alone time with that person in front of you. And I think that's sort of what Jesus was doing. I just don't want to deal with people right now. So he went in hiding. He went in secret in the house, took his disciples out of sight. But he was engaged by the woman from Lebanon who has a name, but we just don't know it. She was persistent. She goes to him and says, my daughter has a demon. Please, please, please. She begged him, please, son of David, help me. And here's this strange statement. His resistance, it's puzzling. Jesus did not answer a word. And I wonder how long It was silent as he just kept walking away from her. Now, that kind of blows up a little bit of my image of Jesus, the compassionate one. He's always ready to meet your needs, and he's at your beck and call, and he heals everybody, a little magic dust here and fairy dust over here, and he's just kind of taking care of all of our needs. And here we see a Jesus who's silent and doesn't respond at all. But she wasn't silent. In fact, the disciples come and say to him and urged him, Jesus, send her away. She's driving us crazy. For she keeps crying out after us over and over and over. This woman is yelling and crying and pleading and persisting in her ask for help. And they're like, Jesus, just do your miracle thing and get it over with so she can leave and we can be done with her. And what does Jesus say? I think he's speaking to the disciples now. Because you know, Jesus is always, always, always teaching and training and modeling and leading and helping his disciples understand more and more what it means to follow his words and ways. And so he says to the disciples... I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, I don't want to have anything to do with this woman. Now, you have to understand Jesus. You have to look at his whole life. You have to know that Jesus is the smartest man that has ever walked the planet. And he knew exactly what he was doing. I was sent only to the lost 
sheep of Israel. He knew what his mission was. Jesus knew what his vocation was, his calling, his identity. And he knew that he was the savior that had come for Israel. His mission and role was to call Israel to obedience, to surrender, for Israel to live into their calling and who they were as a nation. And we can misunderstand Jesus and certainly misunderstand this little story with this woman unless we understand that whole meta-narrative, that, that big picture, that, that storyline that starts in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. But Jesus knew he was headed to the cross, and he knew after the cross there'd be a resurrection, and then the gates would be opened wide for the love and grace and good news of Jesus to go to every single person on this planet. He knew that, but timing is everything. That's why he was hiding in secret in the house. It wasn't time for the cross yet. But he was laser-focused on his mission. And this woman was interrupting it. But more than this woman interrupting it, his disciples needed to understand. Because they were the ones that were saying, get rid of her. And what transpires now, in my belief, is that Jesus was teaching his disciples. You don't get it. You don't see how valuable this person is to me. So he plays the game and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So here's the big story in five quick scenes. You start in the beginning of the Bible and you have creation. And God looked at everything he'd made and said, it is very good. And then a few days later, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to do things their own way. And we get to the second scene, that's the fall. And every bad thing that's ever happened has grown out of that decision. And we make that same decision over and over and over. So God doesn't give up. He has a plan, and his plan always includes a people, and he makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to leave your people and go to a land you know nothing about, and out of you and your wife, I'm going to make a nation. And that nation's going to be my people. And you have a mission, Israel. That is for you to demonstrate what it looks like to be a light, what it looks like to be a nation that loves God and that serves God. And through you, Abraham, I will bless all the other nations. That was the mission, identity, and vocation of Israel, to be the conduit of God's love to the whole world. And they didn't do it. And Jesus the fourth act. Jesus comes sent by God because God doesn't give up to be for Israel what Israel couldn't be for itself. To be the true Israelite, the true Jew. To be the son of David, the king that would sit on the throne. And through Jesus and his cross and resurrection, his vocation, his identity, and his mission that blessing that God has intended for all the nations is now flowing out through the fifth act, and that's the church. That's you and me. The church is the servant of the kingdom of God, the servant of the mission of God to be a light, to show what it looks like to be a people, a gathered community that loves God and loves people. So if we understand that, we know that Jesus' statement, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel in the timeline we're still in Israel. And Jesus is intersecting with Israel, and it's now going to transition into him being what Israel could not be. But this helps me to understand when he was silent in front of this woman, that Jesus' mission did not include him taking away all of the things and people that annoy us. Jesus is not a, a divine candy machine who we put in our little prayers and then out comes these uh, trinkets uh, for our pleasure. That's not Jesus' mission. And if we fail to understand that, we're usually running into a significant amount of disappointment. But the woman persists. 
she does not give up. She falls at his feet and she says, Lord, help me. And then there's this riddle with this confusing sort of tone of banter where Jesus says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Can you believe he said that? Now, Jesus just called this woman a dog. Now, you do that in the 21st century, and you will immediately get canceled. We've just canceled Jesus. Bye-bye, Jesus. You're gone. And if you take that statement and you elevate it and take it out of its context and out of the big picture of what is going on here, you'll probably walk away from Jesus and say, I don't want anything to do with him. What does it mean? It's quite confusing. You know, the term dog was the typical derogatory term that Jews use for Gentiles. And Jesus is using that term. Now, it's very disturbing to our sensibilities, for sure. And there's no way I can fully understand it. But, but this is what I, I think is going on. Jesus is playing the game, and Jesus is helping his disciples understand what his mission is, and at the same time, he is intent on loving and helping this woman. Very confusing. But I like that. Jesus ought to be confusing to us and shake us up a little bit. Now, she gets it. She understands what's going on. This is a snarky, savvy, humble woman. And she says to Jesus, when he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, she says, yes, it is. I'm not taking no for an answer here, Jesus. And Jesus, I think, likes that. And they have a wink in their eyes. Because if you know Jesus, he would never, ever call a woman a dog without something else going on. Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table She's got this winsome insight that Jesus likes. They're on the same wavelength. And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. And at that moment, her daughter was healed. The great faith, I think, that Jesus calls out is found in people who insist that God's will be done on earth now just as it is in heaven. That was her faith. I think the key line is the woman saying to Jesus, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, I just want to insert as a, as a sidelight, I do not think this passage in any way is trying to teach us or encourage us that, friends, if you just have enough faith, your sick daughter will be healed. Because that puts it all on you. And all of us go, I don't have enough faith. Do I have enough faith? I think I'm doubting. I'm not really sure. And we get all caught up in that. No, in fact, I think this passage is teaching really almost the opposite. It's not teaching about miracles and faith. Although her faith is illustrated for us, and it's part of their interchange. But in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is always breaking into the kingdom on earth. You notice that in his miracles, in his moments of compassion, in the time when he feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000, in the times when he walks on the water, in the times when he turns water to wine, in the times when he is transfigured in front of them, it's glimpses of heaven bursting in to earth. But his mission was to go to Calvary, and die for the world. Heaven was poking in to earth. So I want to kind of wrap this up by talking about us a little bit. Because I think this woman, what she's doing when she says to Jesus, oh, no, yes it is, 
it's okay for you to let me have some crumbs. You know, think about bread. And the bread for Israel was manna in the wilderness. And then Jesus said, I, I'm the true bread that comes from heaven. And then in the Lord's Supper, we eat his body. It's the bread that represents his broken body for us. And she says, I want some of that. In fact, I know, I know, ultimately, we're going to be invited. And I want some of the crumbs now. Jesus just loves her insight and her attitude. And I think it's, in essence, what Jesus taught his disciples when they say, will you, will you help us learn how to pray? And Jesus says, well, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe we've been raised and we've said that prayer so many times that we just gloss over it in our memory. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your will be done right now in our circumstances just the way it's now being lived out and done in heaven. That's the essence of this woman's faith. It's not right to give children, uh, the, the dogs, the children's bread. Y yes, it is. Essentially, what she is doing is she is pulling the future into the present. She's praying that prayer. She's seeing her daughter and her daughter's well-being and Jesus' ability to heal. She's seen the kingdom of God coming through Jesus, and she says, I want that in my life right now. It's pulling down heaven to earth. She insisted on it, yet she was on her knees, and she said, you are the Lord. There's humility in her snarky insistence. I don't know how you put those together, but she manifested it. It's us understanding that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And our longing and our prayer and our action is we want to make it better. We just want the world to be better. There's so much suffering. There's so much pain. There's so much bitterness and hostility. And we want it to be better. We want families and relationships and marriages to be healed. We want the pain that afflicts so many. We want it to be relieved. We want there to be justice. We want oppression to go away. We want love to reign. So we long for that and we pray for that. And just as the woman felt her daughter's pain, we feel the pain of the world. That's the calling of believers, to feel the pain of the world and plead with God that he would let heaven rain down in this hurting world. In fact, this morning I read Psalm 13:1. David said, how long, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? The laments of the Psalms are places where we can go and say, God, this just isn't right. Why are you so silent for so long? But we pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. The more we pray that, the more our mind and thinking can come into alignment with God's kingdom values and priorities. Not our own. Those get all mixed up in our head. Our will, what we want. No, I want your will to be done. And as we come into alignment with God's kingdom priorities, there comes a sort of authority in your life to see things happen, to see heaven come down to earth. So that's what I meant about wanting to be married and deciding, you know what, I'm going to start living like a person that another person would want to marry. And I think that's true for this woman. I think that's true for us. What is the pr preferred future that you long for in your life? 
What, what is the will of God that's happening in heaven? What, what would it look like to be a person who has a good relationship with your significant other? What, what does that relationship look like in heaven? Start living into that. What does it look like in heaven to have a proper relation with substances and alcohol? What, what, what does that look like? Start living into that. What, what does it look like to have a longing as a high school student for a college experience that will lead to the career that you dream about? Start living into that even now as you've graduated from high school and are about to go to college. Live into that. What is that thing? What, what is that, that space in your life where you long for what's happening in heaven to be true in your world now. With humility, we don't give God our script and say, God, here's, here's, here's my directive, but we certainly can talk to him about it the way the woman did. We can argue with him about it. And I will say that Jesus opened up the feast to this woman. When he died on the cross, he had her in mind. And then he met with his disciples after the resurrection, and he said, take this good news to every single people group across the planet because now the feast is open to everyone. All are invited. And you might say, who, me? Yes, you. You are invited to the feast. And you can demand that it's true and that it can become a reality in your life. In fact, Paul quoted Hosea the prophet and said, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. You are the beloved of Jesus. So I want to invite you, as Amanda and her wonderful team comes up, I want to invite you to just let the Holy Spirit now speak into this moment. I want to encourage you to, um, to have that sort of uh, insistent, persistent humility to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. What is your will? And maybe there's that spot in your life that... Um, is something you really, really, really want God to manifest himself in. Let, let's, let's just let this be a time of real ministry, a real openness, and you open your heart, your mind to him. And we'll see what God does right now. The Spirit of the Lord is 
you all to stand as we continue to worship and sing. Spirit of God, fall afresh on us. We need your presence, your kingdom come, your will be done. Here as in heaven. Let's sing that together. Spirit of God. start with City Hall and Palos Verdes. Let's start with this whole community. Let's extend it to our beach cities. Let's pray that God's will would be done in the beach cities just as it is in heaven. And let's extend it to our families, to our marriages, to our relationships, to our, our children, to our grandparents. Let's pray. Let's pray with boldness. Let's call the future forward into the world that we live right now. Let's pray for our country, for the incredible division that sometimes is so painful for people. Pray for a sense of unity and pray for our world, the hostilities that show up in places like Tigray and Ethiopia. Pray God's help and hope for those in the refugee camps in Syria. So as we keep singing, let this not just be a song, but let this be a prayer, a bold prayer for heaven to come and show up on earth. Sing that again. Spirit of God, fall fresh on us. This is our prayer this morning. Because you're 
blessing overflow in this place. Fill our hearts with your love. just the knowledge that we can't love you before you love us first. So Lord, we accept that beautiful knowledge that you loved us just where we were, just right here in this very moment. It's you. 
is extravagant It doesn't make sense We'll never comprehend The way you love us Is unthinkable Only heaven knows Just how far you that you love us with a passionate love that you love us with a relentless love and Lord if there is anything that comes between that understanding and that knowledge of your passionate love for us Lord I pray that you would just go to work in us Lord we open up our hearts to you would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you even show us the parts that maybe we feel shame or we feel fear or we feel guilt, Lord? You are not in that business, God. You sent your son on the cross so that we could have full access to you, Jesus. So, Lord, we come before you today as sons and daughters that know that they're loved and seen by their dad. So, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to meet in this beautiful building. We pray that you heard the voices of your people today, that you were praised, that you were glorified, and that you were worshipped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks, guys, for worshiping together. Sweet day. We'll be here all summer, so we'll see you next week. Have a great day. <laughs>